0: Well, back in early 2020, if you can go back there, my husband Kyle and I, we were planning a summer trip to France to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. And specifically, we were going to go to the Alsace region of France, which is near the border of Germany. And it's, I mean, it's like gorgeous. It just looks like it's straight out of Belle, Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's known for its vineyards. And so, to prep for the trip, I set about learning as much as I possibly could about the Alsace region, about the vineyards and the terroir, as they say. And while doing that, I stumbled across the work of a German Christian theologian whose name is Gisela Kreglinger. And she happens to come from a family of vintners. Her family has cultivated vineyards in Germany. For generations. And because of this, she has such an interesting perspective on the important role that vineyards play in scripture and what an absolutely unique plant the grapevine actually is. She writes this, of all the plants that serve as a source of food, the grapevine, like no other, can grow and be productive in the most adverse agricultural contexts, It thrives in stony soils and on the steepest hills and is most productive in places where little else can be grown. I hope you caught that. Grapevines thrive in adversity, in stony soil, on steep hills. They are most productive where little else can be grown. Instead of a week in France that summer, uh, Kyle and I ended up spending a long weekend at a cabin in Pepin, Wisconsin. It was lovely, but not the same. And while overlooking cornfields rather than vineyards, we wondered, how were we going to thrive through this adversity? Would we be able to grow on these steep hills? What was the fruit of our lives Going to be in a climate that seemed to be growing harsher and harsher by the week. Friends, these last 18 months have been more than just a season, they have been full on climate change. And historians of medicine actually talk about how pandemics just, like, fundamentally change how we experience time. Like, everything slows down. Momentum feels like one step forward, two steps back. It's just continual disorientation. And that's, like, on top of whatever else you're dealing with or holding in your life. So what does it mean to be fruitful, as Petey said, in an ice age that isn't ending How do we cultivate purpose and meaning when the climate is so harsh? How do we do anything but just wait it out? This morning, we're gonna be spending time looking at a passage where Jesus compares the fruitfulness of our lives to the fruitfulness of a vineyard, an ecosystem that is able to grow and even thrive in adversity. And while Jesus does not promise to change the climate, He does promise that when we remain in him, our lives will bear fruit. We will bear fruit when we remain in Jesus, no matter how harsh the climate. And so the night before his death, Jesus was spending time having a meal with his closest friends. And he's sharing with them this beautifully intimate moment. And he gets really honest with them about how harsh the climate's going to be for them. He's like, look, the world's going to be against you you are going to face suffering. You are going to struggle to be faithful to me. You're going to have days where the end of your story feels like it's already happened and it isn't good. And in the very middle of that, he tells them what will be absolutely key for their perseverance in the harsh climate. Jesus says this in John chapter 15, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, how do we make it through the harsh climate? Well, Jesus says we're gonna do it the same way a great branch has to stay connected to its life source in the vine. You must remain in me. Now in English, that word remain sounds a little bit like passive, like freeze, don't move. But in Greek, which is the original language of Jesus' words here that we have, that word remain is, like, way more active. Remain is translated from this Greek word, meno. And meno means to, like, stay with someone or stay somewhere. And it's like an idea like commitment, like the way a family is like. We're a family that sticks together. We stay together. That's the idea behind this word, meno. And so because it kind of has this relational tone to it, meno gets used in Greek a lot to talk about where you live. So earlier in John, when the disciples are first meeting Jesus, they use this word meno when they go to him and they ask him, teacher, where are you staying? Where do you live? And so in English, our translations of John 15, sometimes that word meno or remain is translated in this beautiful word abide, abide in me live in me, stay with me. This is no passive waiting it out. Instead, Jesus is calling his friends to actively make their home with him. Just like a great branch needs to be connected to a vine for survival in a harsh climate, and just like the vintner is cultivating that connection until harvest, Jesus wants us to make our home with him, to cultivate our connection with him because he is the source of everything that we need. Here, Jesus is basically just ushering his disciples into the habits of household connection with him so that they can survive and bear fruit even when the ice age comes. In so many ways, I think we become the people that we are because of the other people that we abide with. When I was little, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, and one of the habits of her household that I was ushered into was canning fig preserves during summer. She had this huge fig tree, and every July when the tree fruited, grandma and mom and I would go and we would Pick and peel and mash and cook and can figs that we would give as Christmas gifts later on in the year. And I mean, like it is a super labor-intensive process. It's like way easier to go to the grocery store (laughs) and get one of these. Um, And it was hot and humid, it's like the thick of summer in Louisiana. But because of my grandmother, I learned what a ripe fig looks like on the branch. I knew the right ones to pick. And because of her, I learned that I needed to wear long sleeves and gloves to protect myself from the sap on the tree because it can burn and irritate your skin. I remember watching her peel figs so fast, it was, like, hypnotic, and slowly my, like, clumsy hands started to match her pace in the work. I learned how to stir the boiling fruit with a long-handled wooden spoon so I wouldn't get burned. And because grandma was a good and patient teacher who I could depend upon even when I didn't have a clue what to do, because she remained in me and I with her, I actually learned how to create a delicious jar of fig preserves. Actively making my home with someone that I could learn from and depend upon, learning the habits of her household, all of that produced fruit in my life. Now, of course, though, there were summer days when like the last thing I wanted to do was to go and pick figs. And so rather than remain with grandma, I would retreat and quit early and beg to go watch cartoons. Or I'd react with stubborn frustration and intentionally peel my figs really terribly just because I wanted to be done. When faced with discomfort or stress, most of us are either retreaters or reactors or some combination of both. Some of us retreat, we pull back from the conflict, we hibernate, we try to wait out the stress and just wait for something to change and then maybe we'll peek back out. And some of us are reactors. We, when something stressful happens, we like grip more tightly to whatever control we do have, we shake our fists at the sky as if we could will the climate itself to go back to normal. Over the last 18 months... I have waffled between these two poles, reaction and retreating, almost daily. But both of these responses, they take my focus off of making my home with Jesus. They take my focus off of remaining in Jesus and the resources that he is supplying for me, and instead they turn my eyes back on myself, my resources, my timeline, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, a demon named Screwtape is coaching his younger demon nephew on how to make this young English man, who they call their patient, fall away from faith. And they specifically really want him to fall away from faith when he's feeling stressed or tired of waiting for something for a long time. And Screwtape writes this to his nephew about the patient. He says, make sure that the patient's inner resolution is not to bear whatever comes to him, but to bear it for a reasonable period. And let the reasonable period be shorter than the trial is likely to last. And why is this effective? Screw tape goes on. The point is to keep him feeling that he has something other than the enemy, which is God in this case. The point is to keep him feeling that he has something other than the enemy and the courage the enemy supplies to fall back on. Basically, screw tape is like keep the patient hooked in that retreat reaction loop because, as long as he's there, he'll be relying on something other than God. He'll be relying on his own resources, his own control, his own timeline. Friends, I don't talk about the devil a lot, but it is a scheme of the devil to get us to retreat from habits of dependence in the household of Jesus. It is a scheme of the devil to get us to reactively spin our wheels, seeing if we can engineer some softer soil or flatter hills or easier climate. And ultimately, it is a scheme of the devil to make us believe that the fruitfulness of our lives depends upon us or some external circumstance or condition, anything apart from the life of the true vine flowing through us. The good news is that in John 15, Jesus doesn't just tell us to remain in him. He also shows us how, and it is blessedly uncomplicated. Picking up in verse seven, Jesus says, "'If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, "'ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. "'This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit.'" Have loved you. So here, Jesus very clearly and very simply is showing us what it looks like to actively make our home with Him. So many of us assume that the Christian life requires some kind of like super spirituality or special technique or secret wisdom to unlock the solutions we're after, but what Jesus shares couldn't be further from that. His heart is to make known to us how we can abide with him. And most of it comes down to daily dependence rather than spectacular performance. Tish Harrison Warren, she puts it this way, the kind of disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith, but it's in the dailiness of it the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. So how can we make our home with Jesus? Well, first, we can converse with him. We converse with Jesus. Jesus says, If my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. Quite simply, Jesus is just referring to prayer and reading scripture. Prayer is when we talk to God and come to him with honesty about the desires and the needs of our hearts and where we're at. And scripture is where we take God's word into us. One is speaking, one is listening, and both are essential ways that we have conversation and make our home with Jesus. Now, when Jesus says, ask whatever you wish... I do not want you to imagine some kind of like mall Santa Claus or genie in a bottle. That's not the kind of conversation he has in mind. But if we remember that Jesus is wanting us to think about life in a household, like life around a table, we can imagine it more the way that conversation plays out between friends that are lingering over the remnants of dinner. By that point, you're not having the light conversation anymore, but things have shifted to that more authentic question of, how are you really doing? It's in that context of intimacy and knowing that whenever we come to Jesus with whatever we wish in prayer, the reality is is that those wishes have already been deeply shaped by the fact that Jesus's words are remaining in us. In conversation with God's word, our truest wishes are revealed and redefined. And so what we want becomes shaped by what, we, by what Jesus wants for us and the character of his words and his love. That's the kind of conversation with Jesus that sustains us. And so if you're feeling like you need to like press like a reset button, on your habits of prayer or scripture reading. There's probably like as many methods to doing that as there are people watching this right now or people in this room, but I have just one small suggestion for you. Try going through the prayers that are in scripture itself. In God's word to us, God has put words that we can use back to him. You can start with the Psalms, or you can go through the prayers of Jesus in the Gospels. But sometimes when our words are hard to find, using the words of those that have gone before us can really unlock the conversation with Jesus that we most need to have. And when we pray with Scripture, we're also tuning our ears for what God might be saying back to us. So going back to John 15, Jesus wants to have conversation with us, but it's more than that. There are other people living in the household too. And part of how we learn to make our home with Jesus is by loving in community. Again, Jesus isn't vague. He says, You want to remain in me? Obey my commands. My command is that you love one another. I hate to break it to you, but every time in this passage when Jesus says you in Greek, he's actually saying y'all. <laughs> he's saying, Y'all are the branch. Y'all remain in my love. Y'all keep my commandments. Y'all ask for whatever you need. You knew there was a reason God was sending all these Southern pastors up here. (laughs) Every single thing Jesus talks about here, it's in the plural, y'all. Making our home with Jesus friends is a community endeavor. He has designed us to be like arteries, helping connect one another to the beating heart of his love and carrying the oxygen of his lifeblood wherever it is needed in the body. It's why in the Apostles' Creed this morning, uh, as Wit was baptized, we said together, we believe. It's an acknowledgment that I actually have no belief on my own apart from a community of believers that helps me sustain it, that makes it possible. One of the most difficult parts of the past year and a half has been navigating how do we stay connected in community? It's less convenient, it's way more dependent on technology, and while there are so many ways that I think virtual connection has been a huge gift for loving in community in this time, my concern is that we will slowly start to think that virtual connection is somehow an equal substitute for embodied community. When the pandemic hit, one of the first organizations that worked as quickly as possible to find ways for people to meet safely in person was Alcoholics Anonymous. Because in AA, it's a little bit insufficient to show up on a Zoom call. Instead, as one of my friends told me, she's like, you have to be able to smell each other. So for folks in the recovery community, The climate was too rough to try to go without some kind of embodied community together. And I share that not to make any of us feel guilty or ashamed for how we are all making really hard choices through this season. What I am saying is that actively making our home with Jesus requires that we figure out a way to do it with others. We all need a y'all. And that may take a little more creativity right now, and it may be way less convenient than we'd like. You may need to lay down some of your preferences to prioritize community with those that are more vulnerable. You may need to consistently show up on a Zoom call week in and week out, all the while longing for the day when you can reunite in person. But however you do it, community is precisely the thing that we must not give up right now. Loving one another well, Beyond convenience, with intentionality, it's a complete non-negotiable for how we learn to make our home with Jesus. And ultimately, we make our home with Jesus by learning from how he makes his home with us. You can learn how to make your home with Jesus by learning how he is making his home with you. From the very beginning, the Gospel of John says that Jesus came to dwell among us, to enter into our human frailty and brokenness so that we may be restored to right relationship with God and one another. And John in the Gospel shows us over and over again that the reason we're invited to make our home with Jesus is that he's already invited himself over He is the true vine that has grown and wrapped its way around all of our broken branches and he will not let us go. This changes everything. This means that when you feel that temptation to react in control, you can look to Jesus and you can remember the way that he prayed to his father the night that he was dying and he said, Father, not my will, but yours. It means that when you feel that temptation to retreat and shrink back from the demands and the inconvenience of love and community, you can remember how Jesus looked at the incredible anguish of the cross and he said, it is so worth it. It means that when you feel like this pandemic climate is just way too harsh, and the hills are too steep for any fruit to grow in your life, you can remember that the fruitfulness of Christ's life reached its peak on the hill of crucifixion. The last place that anyone imagined anything fruitful to possibly happen, it is from there that life flows to us. It means that when we're exhausted from the constant disorientation of this time, we have a hope in the one who after three days rose from the dead and promises that absolutely nothing will separate us from an everlasting home with him. This is how we learn from the one who makes his home with us. He is the one we are connected to. He is the one who breaks through that retreat reaction cycle because he has come to remain with us. When I was staying at that cabin in Pepin, I was praying one day and I actually had this like very distinct image of Jesus inviting me in from the cold into a warm home and he was preparing a meal for me. And he was saying, Make your home in my love, Emily. Amidst all the questions, the disorientation, the confusion, the frankly unfathomable waiting that lies ahead for us, this is actually the climate where Jesus is making his home with us, inviting us to sit down at the table and have a conversation, inviting us to love the other people that we find at the table with us, to learn the habits of his household, because with him we have everything we need, to bear fruit. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, you have told us to remain in you, and Lord, you've also shown us how. And it starts with you determining to be the God that chooses to remain with us. And Lord, you say that this is all for our joy, a joy that no situation or struggle could ever touch or take away. Jesus, help us to taste and see the joy of abiding in you today. Help us to know true communion with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.